This is Everyday Wealth with award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and personal finance expert Gene Chatsky. With us today is Amanda Clayman. She's a financial therapist, which was a gig I didn't even know existed a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and also, she's been on the Death, Sex, and Money podcast and hosts Financial Therapy with Amanda Clayman. Amanda helps bring money into balance. I don't think people think money and balance often in the same sentence. So we'll talk about that. And we're very excited to have you with us, Amanda. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Soledad. Hi, Jean. Great to be here. Thank you. It's nice to see you. So I think Soledad's not the only person for whom financial therapy is kind of a new thing. So what is it? What what do you do day to day? Financial therapy is a way of engaging those parts of financial well-being that sometimes we don't give a lot of attention to. I'm talking about the emotional and the relational and the psychological aspects of our financial life. We talk all the time about what the numbers say, but I I don't know that we put as much attention sometimes or hold as much space for people to really talk about the dilemmas or what's difficult or how they get in their own way. So those are kinds of um, the messy places are where financial therapists are helpful and, and can engage with clients to help them kind of unlock some things where they might have been getting in their own way. So is it thinking about money as just another sort of element of your, I don't know, upbringing, like how finances have affected your life and how you were raised and how you think about them? Am I getting it right? Yeah. What we find is that the way that we think about money is kind of siloed. We put it in this rational category. And so when we're having rational conversations about money, there's a whole lot of ourselves that that is excluded from that kind of a conversation. And similarly, when we're talking to our therapist or our mental health professional, we might find that money isn't such a natural fit for going into some of those more internal or or like you were mentioning the family of origin stuff. So financial therapy is is really just meeting in the kind of intersection of that Venn diagram. We're really looking at money, like how we make decisions or the associations that we have with money, the meaning of money. And also taking into account that a lot of our understanding and, and a lot of the patterns that we have with money as adults were actually set up and began in our family of origin. There's a sense of though, like, how was money treated in your family growing up? Do you remember the emotional sort of tone when money was discussed? I mean, these are things that that two and three-year-olds absolutely pick up and can sometimes follow us well into our adulthood. I did a story at one point about a woman who was raised to believe that her family was pretty poor, actually. And they turned out to be pretty wealthy, but her parents sort of never allowed her to experience that or see it. And as a result, when she grew up, she could just not spend any money on herself. She needed to go back and understand what happened in her childhood in order to be able to handle her adult life. How common is that? It's extremely common. I I would say that it's the norm and it really doesn't have to be. I I think that the more we have conversations like this that expand in a in a more holistic kind of way our understanding of what money is and how it shapes our lives that that can be incredibly helpful. And I think we also have the opportunity to look back at some of the 
the factors that shaped us when it comes to money and to be able to recontextualize that as an adult. Like I, I bet that mother or those parents had very clear reasons to themselves why they thought that they were doing the right thing in presenting the family circumstances a particular way. But there are unintended consequences of all of that stuff because we never know what meaning the child will make out of that choice or that experience. So we're, we're, Create, we're sort of categorizing what that experience means with our child brain and our limited child understanding. My parents, very much as children of the Depression era, didn't talk about money. I remember once, you know, we, we, my mom pushing a giant shopping cart through the grocery store. And because we had a big family, we had eight people in the family, six kids. You know, we had two giant carts loaded with food for the week or, you know, 10 days or something. And... And my mom would, you know, get cash to pay at the register. And I think it was like $700 worth of food, like a massive food bill because, of course, we had a big family. And I remember her kind of like hissing at me like, do not tell anyone that we spend 700 Like she almost thought it was too flashy to spend $700 on, you know, groceries at the King Cullen in Long Island, New York in the 19, I don't know, 70s, 1980s. But. Um, So no surprise later, as my parents got older, like they just never were comfortable having conversations about money. And it really ended up being not a good thing. We've talked about it on the show before about, you know, in terms of just uh, helping them manage their their money, uh, helping them talk about, you know, who was owed what and how they wanted to leave their money. It was all like this big black box of secrets. I don't know why. It's not, I don't, there, there is not a soul who would care that we spent $700 on groceries in the King Cullen. Like, who would care? But it was so interesting to me. The other day, my daughter, who's 21, was asking about um, our estate plan. I was on the phone trying to set up something for August, wrapping up our estate planning. Uh, and, and she sort of was like, so how does it work? Can you explain it? And my reaction was to be like, oh, this is kind of private. And then I was like, why is it private? Like, this is literally the person who's going to be on the receiving end one day. And I said, you know what? Actually, once we get this all done in August, we're going to sit down with you and your sister and your brothers and walk everybody through how we have thought about our estate planning. Here's the decisions we're making. So this way, at least... When I die, I'll get buried the way I want to get buried. But also, there won't be infighting, hopefully, right? Everyone will understand the thought around it. And I realize that my mom's secrecy really started all those years ago back in the King Cullen. And, you know, when we were experiencing it when she was in her 80s, this this secrecy, which was just not a good thing when it came to money. I'm wondering, is it more stressful when we don't have these conversations? We've been talking a lot about financial stress in this show. Who's most subject to being totally stressed out by their finances? Is it somebody like Soledad who, not to put you on the spot, Soledad, but go ahead, you know, go ahead, whose parents really didn't want to talk about this stuff, didn't want, didn't want to have these conversations? Well, what I love about Soledad's story is that we really can notice a couple different things. Number one is the cultural cover provided by the taboo that we have around money. So the message that your mom was giving you, Soledad, is that this is not something that we share with other people. This is private information. So lots of people decide that something that feels really personal and vulnerable for them is private because privacy allows us to not have to go into that 
vulnerable space. Money brings up a ton of vulnerabilities. And the people who are most prone to financial stress are the ones who, the ones for whom feeling vulnerable is a straight shot to trying to control an outcome. And to a certain degree, that explains or that describes all of us, right? Like if we feel out of control, that's a yucky feeling, try to exert control and make ourselves feel safer. But especially when we're talking about finance, there are always parts of our financial lives that are not going to be in our control. We can figure out a strategy for those things once we make the decision to directly engage and ask ourselves, well, you know, the story I'm telling myself about this experience is X, and then think about what we want to do to change our orientation to that. Were you always good with money? I was so surprised when I first met Gina. We've known each other for a really long time that she wasn't good with money. In fact, that her her failures with money actually led her into a career with money. I think most of us kind of bumble through our 20s, make big mistakes, and then hope to recover from it. Were you great Mm -hmm. with money? And that's kind of what got you into helping people navigate their issues with money? Um, I am fully human when it comes to money, which means that the way that I behave with my own financial life is in many ways very different from the advice that I give to other people. Not in terms of the practice, but because I am a big feelings person. And that was the thing, that was the the truth I had to learn about myself that was very, very relevant to my financial life, is that I am going to feel things very deeply and intensely. And so I need to have guardrails. Sometimes those are agreements with myself or commitments that I make to myself. Sometimes those are ways of bringing in like another person. Give us an example. I'm so curious. So my big feelings mostly come out in the way of avoidance, like the way that I want to control an experience, a stressful experience for myself is to go not going to look at that, not going to make a decision. As you can imagine, avoidance is a really big problem when it comes to money. Financial issues compound when we're not paying attention to them. So less stress, it it sounds like. Learning that confronting it is helping you have less stress about your finances. Yeah. And when you talk about these big feelings, people... The pandemic has made us Mm. all into big feelings, people. About everything, every day, constantly. And our money, right? All the time. That too, yes. (laughs) So what are you seeing as a financial therapist? What has been the impact of the pandemic on our stress levels? I feel like there's been kind of a a split. Um, And I saw this happen in the recession in 2008 as well, where something major happens that kind of disrupts our our business as usual. And for many of us, that creates, first of all, a crisis of meaning, whereas maybe the, the deal that we had made with ourselves around our financial choices, um, for example, like I'm going to take a job that's that I think is more secure, even though it's not as closely aligned with my passion as I would like it to be. And then we get in a situation where all of a sudden security is not what we thought it was. That's not the deal that we thought that we were making. So this is the split. Some of us double down on the existing strategy and say, okay, if there, if I was controlling the situation before and now the situation has changed, I'm just going to bring more control to this situation. I'm going to try to, to do what I'm doing, but do it at a higher level, do it better. What we find with another group of people is that they go, oh my gosh, that was all a dream. It turns out I only have this one life. 
security is not as important to me as I thought it was, because maybe I, I know some friends whose lives are very different. Maybe my own life is very different. Maybe I lost a job and now there's an opportunity for change, even if I didn't seek that opportunity out. So for those people, there's, you know, Maya Angelou has that quote that if you don't like something, change it. If you can't change it, change your attitude. So this is the group that is changing their attitude and recalibrating the context of that decision in terms of a a new understanding about how the world works and what they want their life to be. If people are listening and they just feel like, yeah, this has been a really terrible year for me financially. I am stressed. I'm acknowledging that I'm stressed. I know I should do something about it. What what are the three things that somebody should do now, today? One of the first things that we want to do is to have a container for money. My current way is literally after we wrap this interview in my calendar is an appointment that's called Amanda Loves Money. <laughs> Because I'm giving myself a cue to to embrace what's happening in that container. I'm committing to myself that I'm going to, in this period, check all of my account balances, go over my statements. I'm looking at our cash flow for the next month to three months. I'm reviewing what has happened. Previously, I'm thinking about taxes and if there are phone calls that I need to make, like that goes into the Amanda Loves Money container. That's my container. That's the the commitment that I've made with myself where I do money stuff. And the reason that I have that container is because having a time and place to think about and pay attention to money is our best protection against thinking about and worrying about money all the time. So when I have questions that come up or worries that come up, I say, I'm going to think about this and and look at this when I'm in my container. (laughs) And my container is the place for rewiring these neural pathways, which were established when I was younger. So having this time where, where I've set the rules of engagement is important. You can also have a stop point in your life too, where it's like you have these different um, activities, like I'm going to open all of my mail, I'm going to look at my statements, et cetera. At the bottom of that list, it says stop. And then you notice if you still have any stress, if you're still feeling really keyed up, that's when we want to engage in stress on stresses terms, when like how we're experiencing stress in our brains and bodies. We can call a friend because connection, emotional connection helps us feel less stressed and alone. We can go for a walk. You know, there's a a ton of behavioral science around being able to engage with stress in our body that that can help us reset our, our circuitry. I mean, we're trying to do these complex tasks when we're in a fight or flight or freeze mode, and that's not what our human operating system would advise. And these are some things where I, I feel like if we understand that stress's role is often to bring our attention to something, how can we differentiate once we're paying attention, whether that stress is signal and something that that requires action, or whether it's noise and we need to have a better way to move through that with ease so that it isn't something that that complicates and confounds our ability to make good financial choices. How do you make sure that in that moment where you're trying to figure that out, you don't take that financial stress, and Jean was talking about this earlier, right, and, and, and make a bad decision because at least an action feels like you're doing more and feels like it's a positive direction than doing nothing at all, even if at the end of the day doing nothing was a better strategy. How, how do you not 
make bad decisions due to your stress? So first of all, we need to understand that a decision exists in a moment in time. A decision isn't some perpetual option that we can keep open. So sometimes we need to make decisions and understand that once the decision is made, we don't have control of the outcome. And again, that's the reality. And we might have feelings about that. That is sad. That makes us vulnerable. That can hurt. But but we don't want to set ourselves up to be fighting reality because that's really not helpful. Amanda, so nice to talk to you. Thank you so much. Really appreciate all your insight. Thank you so much. It's been great. Thanks for having me. Everyday Wealth with Soledad O'Brien and Gene Chatsky is sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. To learn more, visit our website, everydaywealth.com.